Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever done any digging into your family tree through like 23andMe or Ancestry.com or some other research platform? You ever done that? Uh, did you like what you discovered? <laughs> I heard about a guy once that paid $100 to have his family tree looked up and then he paid 1000 to have it hushed up. <laughs> so a couple years ago, true story, a couple years ago, Melinda and I were at my youngest daughter's house up in Georgia for Thanksgiving, and she started asking me questions about my family, my grandparents, who their parents were. I told her as much as I knew. I even reached out to a cousin who uh, knows way more about our family history than I do and gave her that information. With that information, my daughter Rachel eventually got this notification through Ancestry.com. Take a look at this. Isaac Allerton, Mayflower Passenger. Your 11th great-grandfather, Isaac Allerton Sr., sailed to North America on the Mayflower in 1620. No one in our family had any clue that we had a relative on the Mayflower. About six months later, Melinda and I decided to go to Cape Cod, Massachusetts for a few days. And so while we were there, we visited Plymouth Rock, and by the way, that's Plymouth Rock right there. It's impressive, isn't it? Got a crack right through the middle of it. 1620, I took that picture myself, and that's why it's so bad. We went aboard a replica of the Mayflower. There I am on the replica of the Mayflower. That's not a big boat, by the way. It's only about 100 foot long uh, boat that, that, that several, I mean, 170 people were on. Can't imagine that. We asked the historian on board what he knew about Isaac Allerton, my 10th great-grandfather, and he, here's what he said. He said, oh, Mr. Allerton, Allerton, what an interesting character. And as soon as he said it, I knew there was a story behind it, and probably not a good one. Turns out, my 10th great-grandfather, Isaac Allerton, did indeed come over on the Mayflower in fact, he was one of the signers of the famous Mayflower Compact. So far, so good. But after they arrived in the New World, Grandpa Allerton was put in charge of the finances of the Pilgrim Settlement, where over time, he helped himself to some of the community funds to pay some of his personal expenses to the point that when it was found out, he was banished from the colony. Now that begs a question. When you're one of only a handful of white European people in this country and your community banishes you, where do you go? <laughs> Turns out he went to Connecticut. And years later, he had something to do with the settlement of New Amsterdam, which eventually became New York City. There was some good news about one of my relatives. Isaac Allerton brought a daughter named Mary with him on the trip over on the Mayflower. A few years after they arrived, my great-great-great-grandmother Mary was wed to a man named Thomas 
Cushman, as far as I know, no relation to Pastor Russell Cushman out at our Lake County campus. And uh, Thomas Cushman was one of the first pastors of the first congregational church in Plymouth Rock. And that's a, uh, go back to the first one. There you go. That is a pick, that, that is uh, the first church in Plymouth. And uh, that's, that's me looking glum outside of that um, <laughs> church right there. Turned, turns out my grandmother Mary was a big deal because she was the longest living survivor of the Mayflower passengers. And I don't know if you can see that here. Mary, widow of Elder Cushman and daughter of Isaac Allerton, and when she died, the last survivor of the first comers in the Mayflower. One of her eight children is my direct ancestor, though at this time, I do not know which one. But the point is this, con men and pastors. <laughs> and probably some pastors that were con men. Disgrace and grace. Mess ups and messengers of the Messiah. That's my family tree. That sounds about right. We're in a series about how to have not a perfect family, but a healthy family. We're looking at a myth about perfect families and a truth about healthy families. Last week, Pastor Dustin, and if you didn't get to see Pastor Dustin's message, man, you gotta see it, it was so good. He talked to us about the myth that perfect families never fight. What a crock. The truth is, healthy families fight fair. Today, here's the myth that we're looking at. Perfect families don't mess up. Do we even really need to talk about that? <laughs> the truth is, healthy families walk in Grace. So I'd like to begin uh, today by reading a passage from Psalm 71. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, until I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. You see, God has this plan that life and love and wisdom and especially knowing him should be passed along from one generation to another generation, that there would be a generation with knowledge and wisdom and insight, which is the gray generation referenced in that passage. And incidentally, let me say this, from a biblical point of view, it is not a bad thing to be a gray head. In fact, it's kind of a cool thing. This is from the book of Proverbs. Look, take a look. Book of, look. Read this out loud with me. Come on. A gray head is a crown of splendor. That's right there in the Bible, folks. And with every haircut I get, I appreciate those words more and more. The idea is that each generation is to devote themselves to imparting something true and something meaningful and something lasting to the next generation so that from generation to generation, we will proclaim your praise. And the primary means that God designed to pass along these timeless truths and eternal values is the family. The family, biblically speaking, is the first and most basic relational unit of any society. 
Our next-gen ministry at Journey has a heart, not just to minister to the children, but to the whole family. Because it doesn't matter how exciting or enticing our children's ministry programming is on Sundays if a child is living in a messed up family the rest of the week. So the wrong question is, how can we have a really cool children's ministry that all the kids want to come to on Sunday? That's the wrong question. The tougher but more accurate question is, how do we help families flourish? How can we better understand cultural trends and patterns and challenges that families are facing? And then how do we address them with the eternal wisdom of the scriptures? How do we declare God's truth to the next generation? How can we be a healthy, biblically functioning, multi-generational church? You know, there's a lot of churches in our day, they just kind of age and die. In fact, uh, they don't change much and they would prefer death with dignity over change with pain. And that's a gradual, slow process, but it happens all the time. It's conservatively estimated that about 3,700 churches close, hold their last service each year in America. And then there are some new churches that kind of spring up where everybody's kind of young. They all listen to the same music, kind of dress the same way, but they're missing the whole generation to generation family vibe. There are very few churches that are flourishing that are authentic, multi-generational communities. But that's what God is doing here at Journey. We are a multi-generational and a multi-ethnic congregation that really wants to learn how can a diverse, growing church really be a family and how can we best equip the families in this congregation to live out what God intended when he first created the family. So this baby dedication Sunday, I want to walk you through what one of my favorite writers named John Ortberg calls the three critical moments in the history of the family. I call them this, some great and not so great moments in the history of the family. Understanding these three critical moments will put you way ahead of the game when it comes to living out God's plan for the generations and why the imprint of our family go so deep in each of us. The first one comes way back before time and trying to communicate about things before time is a challenge, so we have to use our sanctified imaginations. Listen to how John Ortberg describes this, I love it. He writes, imagine this, one day God is there with his angels and God says, I have an idea, I'm going to create the family. And an angel says, Lord, what is a family? And God says, I'm very excited about this idea. Of course, I'm excited about all my ideas because one of the great things about being God, you never have a bad idea. <laughs> but this one is kind of unique, he says. The family's gonna be the primary way I connect people, just kind of bind them together in love, and it will work like this. Adult people, grown-up people, will sign up to take care of tiny little strangers. And one angel raised his hand and said, are they gonna get paid? And God says, no, actually, that little stranger is going to cost them a lot of money. <laughs> Not only that, that little stranger won't even be able to talk at first. It will just cry and scream, and they'll have to guess why. And it will make them lose sleep, and it will make messes all the time. They have to clean up, and it will be utterly vulnerable and dependent. And they'll have to watch that kid 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And then when it turns two, that little stranger will be able to say words like mine and no, and it will throw tantrums and embarrass its mother in public and in publics. And then, 
And then I'm thinking about inventing something called puberty. And I'm not sure about that one yet. But if I do, they'll get these wonderful things called hormones that will go crazy in their teen years. And odd things will happen to their growing bodies. They'll get pimples. Their voices will crack and their limbic systems will melt down. And eventually they'll grow out of that. And just when they are mature and rational and interesting and able to contribute, they will move far, far away from their parents. That's the idea of the family. (laughs) What do you think about that, God says? And the angels kind of shuffle around and they look down at their feet and they're whispering to each other, who's going to tell him? (laughs) I don't want to tell him. And finally, they elbow Gabriel, the angel, to the front. And he softly says, Lord, nobody's going to want to do that. Who would sign up for that? Why would they do that? And here's where God gets really excited. And he said, that's the best part. They won't even know why. They'll just look at that little body and they'll look down at those little hands and those little feet and they'll think that little stranger is beautiful even though he looks like every other baby and even though all newborn babies look like Winston Churchill. (laughs) And they'll think this baby is beautiful and then one day that little stranger will smile just at them and they'll think they've won the lottery. They won't have words to describe how they feel. And one day that little stranger will say, Dada and Mama, He'll probably say dad at first because daddies are just so sacrificial and nurturing and noble and oh, how love. But moms are nice too. So he will say dada and mama. And then one day those little arms and hands will open up and they'll reach out and they'll wrap themselves around that neck. And it's going to feel to that grown up like for the first time they understand why arms and hands were created. You see, what families are really all about Did I miss something? (laughs) What families are really all about is grace. Everybody say that word with me. Grace. Grace Grace is at the core of everything good in the universe. Do you know that? Grace is who God is. We hear sometimes in the church, we think that grace is about the forgiveness of sin and a get out of hell card. And of course, Grace includes forgiveness of sin and eternity with God, but it's so much bigger than that. God was gracious way before anybody ever sinned. Grace is just part of the gratuitous goodness and generous self-giving love that is inherently a part of God's being, and that's why he created the family in the first place. Children, the next generation, learn they're loved and prized and belong before they've ever done a single thing to earn it or deserve it. Then the grown-ups, the parents, the older generation, they learn that when they give, they will receive. When they give the most, they receive the most. That giving is the best way to live. And in doing so, they learn about life in God's kingdom. That's the beauty of the generations living together. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the ancient city of Ephesus these great words. He said, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom... Every family in heaven and on earth derives its name or comes from or was created to express. Paul is saying here the whole idea of the family is an expression of the character, the love, and the grace of God. That, that, the family is a reflection of who God is. He goes on. I pray that you being rooted and established in love. You see, that's the whole idea of what families do better than anything. 
They have this power together with all the Lord's people to ground and establish children in love so that we might be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ for you and you and you. And if you want to know why family goes so deep in the heart of every person here or Lake County or watching online, that no matter how old we get and no matter how together we look and why does our family evoke such strong emotion and touches longings and hopes and dreams inside of us that no other word does, you have to start there. The family is God's idea. And it is meant to mirror the ultimate truth and reality that God holds the universe together. The Trinitarian family of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the family is not some arbitrary, disposable social structure that can be altered to fit the current culture's ideas. The family is not just some biological mechanism that happens to be a handy way to pass on DNA so the human gene pool can keep moving. The man leaving his father and mother, mother and cleaving to a woman and then weaving together a new societal unit is a divinely ordained idea. The family was created to be a reflection of his character, a mini manifestation of his kingdom and the vehicle of his grace. There's never been an idea before or since like that. And that's the first great moment in the history of the family. But then comes a second critical moment in the history of the family. And this is a not so great moment. This is when the first husband and the first wife of the first family disobey God for the first time and commit the first sin. And most of you, you know about this story. It's recorded in Genesis chapter three. But what I wanna do right now, I want you to note the impact of sin on the family because that's the place that got devastated first. So the man and woman eat the forbidden food and God said to them, have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, yes, I did. And it's all my fault. And I'm so sorry, Lord. Put all the blame on me. <laughs> Is that what the man said? Yes. Not so much. Now, here's what the man said. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Only one other human being in the whole world, and the man blames her, and you notice he doesn't even call her by name. He doesn't say, Eve, my beautiful wife, gave me a bite of fruit. No, he says, the woman. <laughs> That's what we do in families when things go wrong. You know what that son of yours did today? <laughs> or your mother says, you ever hear her say stuff like that in your family? Heard about a little boy who was sitting outside on the steps of their house waiting for his dad to come home from work. The little boy had a troubled look, and the dad finally arrives, and he asks him what's wrong. The little boy says, frankly, I can't take your wife anymore. <laughs> the woman you put here, she gave me some fruit from the tree. Adam suddenly says, she wasn't my idea, God. The woman you put here. So the blame game. It's going early on in the history of the family. And that explains a lot, doesn't it? 
Imagine what happened later on when Adam and Eve debriefed that moment. Do you think Eve said something like this? Honey, I really admire your courage in pointing out to God where it was my fault. That's true. I did give you the fruit, and I really appreciate you making the Lord aware of all this. Do you think that's how that went down? I bet Adam slept on the cold, hard ground alone for several nights for that brilliant move. Not the finest moment in the history of husbands right there, guys. So blame, deceit, cowardice, denial, unresolved conflict, they all started there. Do you see that in your family? I do in mine. And it all started right there. If you've ever read through the book of Genesis, book of Genesis is the first of the 66 biblical books. One of the things that will strike you when you read through it is it is the story of families. It's not the story you might expect. It's not the story of great nations or armies or organizations or corporations, but of families. The story of humanity is played out not on battlefields or courtyards or palaces or vast expanses of geography or corporate boardrooms, but in the home, the family, and not just families, but deeply dysfunctional families. We've talked about this a lot at Journey over the years. Most recently, we talked about it in this series called uh, Turning Trauma into Triumph. That was a series that we did last fall on the life of Joseph and his brothers. If you haven't seen that, I recommend you do that. But today, I want to go back before that. The very first brothers on the planet, Cain and Abel, they didn't get along so well, did they? Then there's a murderer named Lamech who comes along and introduces polygamy to the human race, that a man would marry more than one woman. That wasn't God's original design. That wasn't God's will. Later, a man named Noah, after God spared his family from a great flood, gets drunk, passes out naked in his tent. One of his sons sees all this, takes some kind of perverse pleasure in it, and when Noah sobers up, he pronounces a formal curse on his own son, and Noah is called the most righteous man in his generation. That's setting the bar kind of low. Abraham, one of the most celebrated personalities in all of Scripture, lies like a rug and says that his wife Sarah is really a sister because she's so beautiful and he's afraid a more powerful man is going to want her for his wife and kill Abraham to get her. And Abraham says, it's okay, honey, go ahead, say that you're my sister. And he does that not once but twice. He's a child with Sarah's servant. And then he eventually abandons both that child and the child's mom. His other son, Isaac, and his wife spend their lives playing favorites with their two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, with the help of his mom, deceives his dad, cheats his brother out of his birthright. His brother vows to kill Jacob, forcing Jacob to flee for his life. Jacob goes on to marry two women who are sisters, no less. He has children with both of them and their servant girls. He favors one of his sons, Joseph, to the point that his other sons want to kill him, and they tried But they ended up selling him into slavery instead and lying about it and cover it up for years and years and years. Friends, these families are like Dr. Phil Guest (laughs) or even worse, Jerry Springer. (laughs) And that's just the first book in the Bible. And what's interesting is that the writer doesn't try to cover up any of this stuff. Because you see, listen to me. There's never been a golden age of the family where everybody got it right. There's never been a golden age of the family where everybody got it right. And that somehow we just need to get back to that. Because families have always been made up of little sinners who grow up to be big sinners. 
And that's just what they are by nature. And it all started with a bite of fruit. One more thing, one more thing. It's through these strange, dysfunctional, messed up, wacko families that God is present and working to keep the dream of redemption alive. It was through these families that were laid open before us all in their humanity and brokenness that God brought to the world a savior that we so desperately needed. Friends, listen to me. The church is not a place for successful, together, healthy families to gather and smugly congratulate themselves on how well they're doing. It's a place for people in families broken and marred by sin to come and confess our need for God to do what only God can do and turn our families over to him because I'm not God and you're not God and our families are not God and we can't even do it by ourselves. We can't do it together. Only God can take a mess and make the miracle of transformation happen. So, First great moment in family history is it's God's idea. It's an expression of grace. Then this horrible moment happens, this horrible moment when all violence and anger and deceit and betrayal and hurt and woundedness just began to flow out of us, turning us away from God's will and for the human race. That's a not so great moment in the history of the family. So where's our hope? That's what we all want to know, isn't it? Is there any hope? And that leads us to the third critical moment and another great moment in the history of the family. And here it is. There is hope. And this hope has a name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. There is hope. And this hope has a name and his name is Jesus. There's a lot of other hope. There's a lot of resources for families that are helpful and very good. But friends, there's only one source of hope that everything hinges on. But listen to me, even Jesus's entrance into a real world family seemed kind of odd to most people. And it seemed especially odd to his earthly family. You see, when Jesus, Jesus was God come down to earth, which means among other things, he became human and he was part of a real family with real siblings and a real mom and dad. And all the real struggles that you have when you're part of a real family. And so Jesus starts his ministry. And believe it or not, his family is not exactly cheering him on. They're they're looking at how he's hanging out with sinners and how he's offending nearly every religious leader they knew. And all the respectable people, they probably spent their whole lives trying to impress. And they don't like this at all. This is not reflecting well on our family. And so we read this in Mark's gospel. When his family heard about this. What's the this? That Jesus was teaching and healing on the Sabbath. Big no-no. And he's appointed 12 apostles to follow him around. And he's infuriating all the religious leaders. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said he's out of his mind. Look at that phrase for just a moment. They went to take charge of Jesus. Think about that. How do you think that played out? You ever think about that? Somebody in your family, somebody needs to take charge of uncle Harry. He's starting to get a little creepy. Somebody needs to take charge of aunt Bertha before she burns her place down. Maybe they're concerned for his safety. Maybe they're concerned that their family's reputation is getting trashed. People are starting to look at them kind of weird because of what Jesus is doing. So They plan on doing a little intervention 
and they're going to pull him out of what he's doing, and they're going to take him back home to Nazareth and make a respectable carpenter out of him again. That's what's happening behind the scenes here. And so they show up where Jesus is teaching, and it's a packed house, cram full of people. And someone says, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. They want to see you. And Jesus, realizing what's going down, he says something remarkable. Take a look at this. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, gathered just together like we are today to learn. And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister, my mother. In our modern Western society where families kind of drift in and out of each other's lives, we might think those words would be mildly shocking, no doubt hurtful, but in Jesus' day, these words are scandalous. The family bond was tight and long-lasting, and as with many non-Western cultures today, it was normal for children to live close to their parents, if not with their parents. The family unit would often be a small business unit as well. They worked together. They lived together. They shared everything in common. But Jesus is starting a new kind of family. That's what he's saying. And this is the third critical moment in the history of the family. Jesus is starting a new kind of family, and he's saying, all human beings who love God and follow me, they will become part of my forever family, and that means they will become brothers and sisters with each other, and they'll be committed to each other and love. And this will be true not just spiritually. You see, it wasn't Jesus' intention that his new family come together occasionally for a weekly worship gathering and then go about their individual lives the rest of the week. No, they became family, and it's true emotionally, and it's true relationally, and it's true psychologically, and it's true financially. This new relational structure that Jesus put into place becomes a new reality. In the ancient world, this all-inclusive family that Jesus started of Jew and Gentile, slaves and free, male and female, springs into being. There never been a family like this before that transcended status and gender and background and nationality and age and generation and language and skin color and culture, but it really happened. The church, as revealed in the book of Acts, sprang up all across the Mediterranean world and eventually made its way to America through deeply flawed, messed up people like my Mayflower ancestor, Isaac Allerton, and through your deeply flawed, messed up ancestors too. But here's the good news today. All families can find help and hope in Jesus regardless of how messed up they are. Amen? I said this good news. Let's say it one more time. All families can find help and hope in Jesus regardless of how messed up they are. Amen? Now listen. While we often underestimate the deep unconscious imprint our families of origin leave on us, we can't overstate how much the gospel of Jesus can change our lives and our families. Because listen to me, the great news of the gospel of Jesus is that your biological family of origin does not determine your future, God does. The critical factor that most significantly determines my new identity as a Christian is not the blood of my biological family, but the blood of Jesus. 
What has gone before you is not what you have to become. Your legacy and your destiny is not determined by your birth family or your adopted family, but by your grace family. And God's grace is always greater than any disgrace we are dealing with because the grace of God meets us where we are, as we are, and makes it possible to be more than we are. And discipleship, following Jesus at its core, is putting off the sinful patterns and ingrained habits of our birth families and being transformed to live as members of Jesus' new birth family. That's a great moment. We say it like this at Journey. Everybody's welcome because nobody's perfect, but through Jesus, anything is possible. Amen? Stand, stand, stand with me right now. Lake County, stand together with me. Let's stand. So, Father, we are so grateful that you've given us an opportunity to be able to just come together, whether it's in Apopka or Lake County or in living rooms and kitchens or family rooms or outside, wherever people are gathering today on live stream. We're so grateful, Father, that we have the opportunity not only for the families of origin that we all come from and we all acknowledge they're messed up, we all acknowledge that there's flaws that we have in our families. And it has been that way since Adam and Eve. And yet, there is the grace of Jesus that makes us a new family, that teaches us what it means to be in a new birth family, a grace family. God, let us lean into that. Let that be the kind of church journey is and will continue to become Everybody taking next steps because everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. No family's perfect. But Jesus, through you, anything's possible. And we agree with this in Jesus' name and we say, amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And through Jesus, anything is possible.